turn with me. I've had some thoughts in my mind that I want to share with you that I believe will be profitable for every one of us. If you want to go to Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah 40. And as I sought the Lord as, as to what he would want us to try to preach on this morning, This is what was on my mind. Now, I've tried to preach on this before, but it was still there on my mind and on my heart. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try again with the Lord's help. But what I want us to be thinking about this morning is about the power of your God. The power and even the size and the might of your God. You know, Because if you're really honest with yourself, there's no problem in your life, there's no problem in this world that cannot be solved by your God. Now, there, you know, we've been talking throughout this week. It's hard not to talk about the situation with the coronavirus and, and you know, the situation with, I mean, it, it's a scary thing. People, people, I've known of people who have died from it. I mean, it is, it is a for real virus. There's also um, a, lot of, a lot of fear out there in the world that is causing other problems. Uh, the fear itself is causing problems. And so you can sit there and you can get discouraged about how big of a problem this is and, and what we face in this world. And you may, have, you may have cancer in your family. You may have sickness in your family. And whatever mountain you're coming up against, whatever you're facing, you may feel like there's no way. There's no way that I can face this on my own. Well, I want to remind us of who your God is. And, and I want you to remember and just think about this as we're going through some of these examples. Is your God's hand, is his arms shortened that he cannot save? Okay. Is he limited in his capacity to come to your aid? So Isaiah 40, and we're going to look at verse 12 just for the sake of time. We're going to zoom right in. Isaiah 40. I was in Isaiah 41. That wouldn't have been helpful. Isaiah 40 and verse 12 says, Who hath measured the waters and the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with the span, and comprehended the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales, and the hills in a balance. Now, I appreciate visiting this part of the country. Where we live, we, it's not flat. We have some hills, but we don't have mountains like this. And so as we're driving around, and I don't know, you may or may not take the views for granted at this point because you're so used to the beauty of it. But you see those mountains off in the distance and it looks like a backdrop, you know, from some movie scene, right? And then, and then you see this verse where it says that he has measured the mountains in scales. I mean, can you imagine going up to the side of one of those mountains and trying to just push it and move it? But yet God is the God who carved out this world who measured the mountains and scales. And then it says here, it says that, uh, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Now, the hollow of your hand is when you, if you were to cup your hand, the little, the little uh, bowl there in your, in your hand, in your palm, that's the hollow of your hand. Now, can you imagine scooping up some water? I don't know if you've ever done this, where you scooped up some water, maybe you tried to drink some out of your hand. How successful were you <laughs> in getting a whole lot of water to your mouth? I, I've never been successful. That's why if I'm really thirsty and, I, and I'm going to the to maybe to the water hose outside or something because I just can't make it inside, I've got to get water, I just put my face in it, you know, because there's no use in splashing it up because you're, you're not going to be very effective. Well, it says that God's hand could measure out all of the waters of this world. Now, I don't know if any of you are, consider yourself travelers or world travelers, but regardless of how, uh, of how adventurous you are in your travels, nobody is able to visit all of this earth. It's just too big. It's too big to fit it in in your lifetime. I hope that's not shocking anybody. I hope that's not disappointing to anybody. <laughs> but that's just, that's just the earth. And, and the earth is only about 30% of, of, of what you live on in this, this planet, right? The other 70% is water. And it's not just, it's not just 
covering an expanse. It's deep. You know, we think about as about Mount Everest as it being the highest point on the earth. Well, we don't even consider all the mountains that are covered in water underneath the ocean surfaces, right? Did you know this? This is a little fact for you. We know more about the, top- the topography of Mars than we do about the topography of our own, uh, our own planet. And why is that? Well, because we have obviously spent more money and research in looking at Mars and, and uh, measuring out the, the valleys and the mountains on Mars. You know, we've only mapped out a small, small percentage of the ocean's floor. I mean, we have a general idea, but we have no idea of the specifics. I mean, we could go down there and find all who knows what. And it's all just covered up in water. All that was measured out in the hollow of his hand. We also see this in Isaiah 40 and verse 12. It says, and meted out heaven with the span. Now that's the distance between your pinky and your thumb. It would have been a, a, a crude way of measuring on the job site. If you were doing some, some craftsman work, you could, you could measure out the span. Now, this tells us that your God, the God that we're here to worship today, measured out heaven with the span of his hand. Now, I don't know if you've ever done this where you've just looked out at the stars at night and just been overwhelmed with how small you are, how insignificant you are in comparison to all of that. You know, we already mentioned that it's impossible for you to travel all around this this earth. And the earth is big, right? Well, what about the sun? The sun is huge in comparison. Did you know that you could take about one million Earths and fit it inside of the sun? Now that is ginormous, as we say, right? That is huge. But did you know this? The sun is just another star, and it's actually just average size. And so when you're looking up at the night sky, you're seeing a bunch of other uh, stars and other suns, if you will, And there are some that are 100 times larger than our sun. That really kind of puts it in perspective to me that all that I know of life, everything everything that I've ever experienced is so contained to such a tiny little speck of God's creation. All right, so what if you wanted to travel to one of the other stars, right? (laughs) What if you wanted to travel to just the very nearest star to us? Well, if you could somehow travel at the speed of light, which you can't, it would take you about four years to get there. Now, that's that's a long trip. Lord willing, when we leave here today, my wife and I are going to travel about eight hours back home. Now, that's going to feel like forever when you're driving that. Eight hours and we're crossing, you know, part of the country And it just feels like it just goes on forever. I can't imagine taking a trip that would take four years. But it's not even possible to make it in four years because you can't travel at the speed of light. What's the other fastest thing I can think of? Well, what if we tried to send an email there? Now, that's pretty. Now, technology blows my mind. But can you imagine this? Can you imagine that right now you could send an email and it would get to Australia that's about the farthest place away I can think of. It can get there in about two-tenths of a second. You know, that's about half the time it takes to blink your eye. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine, just, just blink your eye and just imagine an email could have gone to Australia and back by then. Now, that's fast. But you know how long it would take for an email to get to the nearest star? It would take about eight years for that email to get there. That just gives you an idea of how big, how huge creation is. All right, well, what about, what about if we wanted to send it to the, to the furthest star away in our galaxy? 
All right, so the Milky Way galaxy, you can see it at night. What if you wanted to send an email to the, to the furthest star? Well, it's not that far away. You know, it would only take about 100,000 years for your email to get there. <laughs> just, imagine, just imagine that if Adam and Eve would have sent an email <laughs> to this star, it would, still, it would still barely, barely be scratching the surface and getting there. What if you wanted to go to the next galaxy? Now keep in mind, the Milky Way galaxy is one of 100 billion galaxies within the observable universe. If you wanted to just go to the next closest one to us, the Andromeda galaxy, you can see it. You can see it from, from the night sky. You know, it's not that far away. Uh, it would only take about... Five million years for your email to get there, <laughs> right? I mean, that's amazing. That's 2.5 million light years away. If, if Adam and Eve got on a rocket ship going at the speed of light on the, the, the day of creation, they would be about one four hundredth of the way there. Isn't that amazing? And you think about that. I know I, I have a point in all of this, Okay. <laughs> Like I tell the judge, judge, I have a point. I'm getting there. You know, if you see that and you observe that, that size and that scale of creation and you see that God just measured it out in the span of his hand, you also think about this. I don't know if any of you have ever done this. You see a beautiful, you see a beautiful sunset or a beautiful flower and you say, thank you, God. Thank you, God, for allowing me to see this. And, and that's a, that is a, a, an appropriate response, an appropriate prayer for us to pray. But you know this, we can very easily, because we are self-centered, self-focused, we can very easily get into the, to the ditch of saying that God created all of, this, all of this creation for us to enjoy. Now, there, that's true. The Lord, the Lord expects you to enjoy creation. He doesn't, he doesn't expect His people to be miserable. You know, you know, contrary to popular opinion, you as a child of God don't have to be miserable. God wants you to be joyful. So yes, you ought to enjoy His creation. Yes, it is, it is completely appropriate for you to visit these places in this world and to enjoy that, to take pictures of it, to, to enjoy it. But I want you to remember this. God created all of creation and He created you for His glory. Okay? It's not for your glory. It's for His glory. And think about this. Think about those sunsets on those faraway planets and faraway stars that a person will never get to. I mean, I pray the Lord comes back before 100 million years, <laughs> you know? Even if we were to send somebody off to one of these places today, I pray the Lord would come back before they would have a chance to get there. So think about the beauties on those planets and on those places that you will never see in this life. What, what if there's vegetation out there? What if there's beautiful flowers unlike any that you've ever seen on this planet? You know, all of that is for His glory. And I, it, it blows my mind to think that God could be sitting there observing the most beautiful star, the most beautiful sunset while He is listening to my petty complaints and my petty prayers. But yet, He loves me so. He loves you so. Now this is, this is when we get to, uh, to experience... <laughs> The power of our God. You know, it said in creation that he made the moon and he made the sun. And then he said, and the stars also. You know, that's all we get. That's all we get of the creation of this vast universe. That he just says, and the stars also. Your God is a powerful God. All right, well... Well, that's great. That's great. We see that God is big, right? 
we see that he occupies all of space. Well, what about something that's really powerful to us? What about time? You know, time is something that no matter how hard you shake it, no matter how hard you try, you cannot escape time ticking on, right? Many people have tried. People have been searching for the fountain of youth. People have been trying to find that, that uh, tree of life. People have been trying to reverse time and find a way to uh, have a time machine. Maybe if you had a time machine, you could go back and you could, you could kill Hitler when he's a baby or something. You know, you, you know the whole stories. There is no way for us to escape time. But what about your God? Jesus himself said this. He said, before Abraham was, what did he say? Did he say, he say, I was? No, he said, I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Now that is an amazing God. What he's telling us there is that he exists in all of space and in all of time. Isn't that amazing? Now it's hard, it's hard for us to comprehend that. But imagine this. Imagine today as you pray to God, as you thank Him for this beautiful day, as we have prayed already, as you bring your complaints to Him and your needs to Him, that at that very same time, He is listening to the prayers of, of our Father in the faith, Abraham. Isn't that amazing? Now, I can't quite comprehend that as well as I can that, that this universe is really big. <laughs> All right, well, what about, what about the power of God outside of those things? What about angels? I know that, that y'all have recently done a study on angels. I believe that was right. Maybe, maybe on your Wednesday nights. You know, angels are, are unique beings. We think of angels as being very powerful things. But keep in mind this. Angels are just his servants, right? You know, the master is always greater than the servant. But nonetheless... Angels are real things. They're real beings. Uh, just because the Lord used them in, in olden times doesn't mean he still doesn't use them today, okay? Now, we read this in Revelation 5, and just for the sake of time, I'll just I'll, I'll quote this to you, or I'll, at least I'll paraphrase it to you. It's Revelation 5 and 11. We see this scene of the throne room, and there is 10,000 times... 10,000 angels there. Oh, and also thousands of thousands. Okay, so what we're getting from that statement is that this number that he's giving us is just a representative number. Basically, it's just a bunch of them. It is an untold number of them. But at the very minimum, 10,000 times 10,000 is 100 million. Then in Matthew 26, I want to read this to you. Matthew 26, 53, verse 53. What we have here, it's so interesting. We see this, this account when, when uh, Judas leads these, these high priest servants to Jesus in the garden, and they go to take him. And then what does, what does Peter do? Of course it's Peter, right? <laughs> I love how one of the Gospels tries to protect his identity by saying, and one of them took the sword. But I love how one of the other Gospels just shoots it straight. I mean, it says, Peter took the sword. He struck the high priest's servant's ear. We also get the name of that man, Malchus, which is anytime you see a name given in Scripture, that just adds to the credibility of Scripture. Because when the, at the time that this was written, you could go find Malchus. You could go find that man and you could ask him, did this happen? You know, you, if you were going to, if all of this was some cunningly devised fable, you would not be putting names in there. Because <laughs> then fact checkers can come in and check, make sure it was right, right? We all know about fact checkers. So he, he strikes the ear of the servant. And then what does Jesus do? You know, just earlier Jesus had told them, he said, if you have anything, you ought to sell it. And you ought to buy a sword, right? Because he said times are coming where it's going to be it's going to be a warfare. Now, was he talking about physical warfare? Obviously not. 
Because what happens when they actually use one of the two swords that they did have, Jesus undoes the effect of it, right? Jesus then heals that servant of that. And what does he say to Peter? He says, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. I love this. He says to Peter, look, Peter, I I don't think you understand. (laughs) I don't need your help. I really appreciate it, but I don't need your help. He said, right now, I could call more than 12 legions of angels, and they would come from my father right away. Now, what's a legion? Legion is is roughly about 5,200 soldiers. So if you do the math there, that's about 62,400 uh, 62, angels. Now that's a lot, right? But, but, but think about this. In 2 Kings uh, chapter 19, one angel, one angel came down and slew 185,000 Assyrians in one night. Okay. Now, that's, that's pretty powerful. Keep in mind, this is just God's servants, okay, the angels. Well, if you do the math then, what Jesus is saying is that at any second, he could call down more than 12 legions of angels who could dispatch 11.5 billion people in a very short span of time. Now, that's about double the population of the world now. I, it, it may have been three or four times the population of the world back then. I don't know. You know, so it's really comical when you see Peter then try to help Jesus out, isn't it? He says, oh, don't worry, Lord, I got you. It's almost like if, if when, we're, when we're playing around with, with Mary Mel, and she says, oh, I'll protect you. It's like I feel really safe when she says that, don't you? It would be the same thing when Peter says, Lord, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to protect you which also makes it all the more amazing and astonishing that your God with that kind of power would endure what he's about to endure in just a few hours after this happens. Because if he has that kind of power at his disposal, at any second he could call in the reinforcements. Not to mention, not to mention that he spoke this world into being. He could just evaporate it like that with his own word. He upholds the world with his, own, with his own power, the word of his power. So what does that tell us about your God and what he's about to go through on the cross? As he endures mocking, would you do that? I don't like it when somebody falsely accuses me of something. I want to have that record uh, set straight right away. I can't, I, I'm so thankful, I say this, from time to time, and I don't mean it blasphemously, but be thankful. <laughs> be thankful that I am not your Savior, that I am not God, because if I were there on that cross, knowing all the wicked things that you were going to do, and as they were spitting on me, and as they were plucking my beard hairs out, and as they were, as they were whipping me, and as I was suffocating there on that tree, you know what I would do? I would give up on you so fast. And I look, I love you. <laughs> I do. But I don't love you like that. <laughs> I'll just, I'll be honest with you. I think we could all stand up and say that. I don't love you like that. But you're God who had all power, all glory, who if anybody had any right to give up on us, it was him. And what did he do? He endured it all for you. Now that is love unlike any you have ever felt for another person. You know, the the very greatest love that you feel is a reflection of the love that he's given you. And And that's why, which we'll get to this in just a second. If you feel love for one another, it is because God has given you that love. Because he is, he is the source of all of our love. And he displays it in the most mighty and glorious way there on that cross. And I wonder, why, Lord, did you do that for me? 
Why would you hang on that cross for me? When you're the person who created this world, why then would you look down through time and see me and choose me and, and, and elect us not based on some decision we would make. Now, that's a big thing for us to remember. I grew up believing in, in election, but the way that I believed in election was that God looked down and he saw the people that would choose him, and so he chose them. Is that what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us that he looked down upon the children of men, and what did he see? He saw that there were none good, there were none righteous, that none would seek him. And just in case you thought, maybe even just one, Lord, he says, no, not one. So what is it about then? It's of his mercy. It's of his grace that he looks down on a bunch of unlovable creatures and he makes them lovable. He makes them good. He makes you uh, lovable and righteous because he loves you. You know, I, I have searched the scriptures, and Brother Dolph, I'm sure you've done the same. I've searched the scriptures trying to find an answer for why. You know, that's a question that we ask so much. As I'm, you know, we're talking to Mary Melanie, and we're trying to explain her things, and she says, but why? You know, why? And, and it's just like a good lawyer. She keeps pulling the string and unraveling the story. And then you eventually get to a point, and you're like, I don't know why. I don't really know why. You just kind of have to say, I guess because we said so. Um, but, you know, why, why did the Lord do this? We know that he went to the cross and he endured that to save you. But why? The scripture doesn't give us an answer other than this. It was his good pleasure to do so. So you've got to face the fact, child of God, if you're sitting there and you wonder, if you've ever wondered in your life, does God love me? Can God forgive me for this sin? Can God forgive me again? Have you ever felt like, that's, that's my third strike, I know. I know the Lord, that, that His grace is mighty, but His grace is not enough for me. It's run out for me. If you've ever felt that way, I want you to remember this. Why did he go to the cross in the first place? It's because he wants you. He wants you there with him in glory. And do you think that this God, whose hands are so big that he can measure out the span of this universe, do you think that his hands are too small to hold on to you and to keep Satan from plucking you out of that? No, you will be with him in glory. He will not be denied your presence. Now, he's come so far for you. He's died on the cross for you. Do you think that he's going to balk now in the face of your little sins that he's already paid for? Praise God he won't. Praise God he's not going to give up on you. You know, it's kind of a comical example, but oftentimes the, the salvation of God's people is compared to this. It's, it's, it's compared that, that God, that, that Jesus died on the cross for you. He went all the way for you. He shed his blood for you. And all you have to do is to reach out and to accept that gift in order for that blood to be applied to you and you to be saved. And they say this. It's kind of circular, but they'll even say this. And I'm not mocking anybody because I have believed this too. But they'll say this. They'll say, there's nothing you can do to be saved. All you have to do to be saved is accept the... You see, you see where the problem is there? Well, that would be like this. That would be like me when I went and proposed to my dear wife. And I got down on my knee and I had, I had a proposal all lined up. And, and it was going to be great. I was going to try to wow her with how I proposed to her, Right? As if I felt like she was going to say no. But I, I tried to, I, 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 it had been years of me uh, trying to win her over. Because even now, uh, a little secret, 
I don't deserve her, okay? So I'm just waiting for her to realize the truth about me and for her to give up on me, right? But nonetheless, if I got down on my knee and I said, Meredith, I love you. You are the beat of my heart. I want you to be my wife. And we can live through this life together. But if you say no, if you say no, I'm going to pour gasoline all over you and set you on fire, right? Now, that sounds crazy. That sounds sort of demented. But sadly, that is the image that so many of God's people have of God. And, and that's why in many ways, we have, in this generation, we have seen an exodus from the church. We've seen a departure of a lot of young people from the church because they can't compute. They can't compute that God because in truth, if that's the God that you see, that's the caricature of God that you see, your view of him is going to be of him as a demented being, right? That he wants you so bad that he did everything for you and then he left it in your hands and when you say no, he sends you into hell and burns you forever. Now, that's not the God that I read about in Scripture. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that that is such a prevalent view out there. And I wish that it wasn't. Here's the God that you serve. <laughs> that he saw you from heaven as he looked down and you were ugly and you were pitiful. I'm not trying to, to, to demean anybody here. It's good for us to remember who we are. And you were ugly and you were pitiful and you had nothing to offer him. We see an image of this. I believe it's in Ezekiel. As God walks past this infant, polluted in its own blood out there in the wilderness, abandoned. You know, I think about these children that are, that are aborted and how, in essence, they are abandoned by their parents. And it's sad, and we have a plight of that now. This is what we see here in this image of this baby in Ezekiel. This is baby that even its own biological parents, as strong and as powerful as those biological urges that God has given us so that we'll actually uh, take care of our children, as strong as those were, they have rejected that child, whether it was born dead or whether it was born alive, it's really in the same condition because without any inter interference, it's going to die on its own. And, and does, it, does, that thing, does that baby have anything to offer this great God who spoke this world into being and flung these stars out into space and measured out the waters of this world and the, and the hollow of his hand? That baby can't do anything for that God. But what does he do when he sees that baby? That baby, and it's a, it's a graphic and ugly sight. That baby polluted in its own blood not suppled, not washed. What does he say? It says, when I saw thee, thy time was the time of love. When your God looked on you and saw you, the image was similar. A little, helpless, worthless, sinful, ugly thing that cannot help God at all, but yet he chose to love you he chose to pursue you with everything that he had. Now, I tried to pursue Meredith, but I, I can't pursue like my God pursues me. I love that we read this in the Psalms. It says, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. You know that, that the Hebrew word there for follow has the connotation of pursuing like a hunter pursuing its prey. Now, can you imagine that God pursues you with his goodness and with his mercy with such intentionality that he is hunting you down with his goodness for you and his mercy for you. And so he goes all the way to the cross and he lays out his life for you and he, he pours out his blood for you. You know, one of, the, one of the names for God that we have in Scripture is Yahweh. And that means the breathing one. And it sounds like breath, right? Yahweh. Isn't it amazing that the breathing one suffocated 
on that cross for you. That's what, that's what crucifixion is. It's not a death of blood loss. It's a death of, of suffocation. And, as, as, and it's too painful to press up on your legs to get breath because of the nails driven. And eventually, to speed things up, they would break the legs. And that's, why, that's when you couldn't stand any longer and you would go ahead and suffocate. Jesus poured it all out before he even had to have the legs broken, fulfilling another prophecy. So the, so the breathing one suffocates for you. Well, also, think about this. If you look in Scripture, this is another sermon I tried to preach one day. At all of the times in which the children of God thirsted, and what did God do? Well, He provided a way. You see, all the wells in Scripture that, that were dug and the Lord blessed. You see, Hagar out in, out in the wilderness, and she is... And she feels abandoned and rejected so much so that she puts that child of hers away about a bow shot away because she knows that we're going to die out here and I don't want to watch my child die. Can you imagine the desperation? And then God sees her. And, and then she looks up and there's a well springing up. He gives her water. Think about all the times in which the Israelites complained in the wilderness and then God brought water out of the rock as that, that rock was smitten for them and the water came out and then he made bitter water sweet. How often has he done that in your life where the situation has seemed to you so bitter and yet the presence of God can come in and it can be such a sweet thing and it defies all logic when God shows up and then a second time they thirst. And the Lord said to Moses, he said, this time I want you to take the staff and I want you to speak to the rock. And, and the water will open up and will gush out waters. I don't know if any of you know much about geology, but normally water is not inside of a rock. <laughs> right? That's a miracle. And so I, I love this. I love the fact that the first time Moses instructed him to smite the rock and water would come out and would feed the people, would water the people. The second time he was supposed to go and speak to the rock. Well, in his anger, we know Moses had a temper. Moses got upset and he went ahead and hit the rock. Well, the Lord still blessed and water came out. But because of his disobedience, Moses did not get to enter into the promised land. Now, I, I, believe, I believe God was setting up a really good type and shadow for us. You know, as a, as a blood-bought child of God, in order to enter into that fellowship with God, first, the rock that followed you in the wilderness, Christ, had to be smitten for you. He had to be broken in order to water you. Now, as a blood-bought child of God, what do you do when you need refreshment? Do you, do you have to go again and crucify Christ again? No, you come before him as a child to the Father. And you, and you say, Lord, let me drink again of that well. You speak to the rock the second time. But nonetheless, no matter how many times the Lord provided water for them, what was one of the things that he cried out from the cross? He said, I thirst. That you're God who's always supplied the needs of his people who always provided for their needs of water and your needs of water in this life, whether it be physical, whether it be some other way. Yet he cried out from the cross, I thirst. That he experienced that for you. Now, if he went that far for you, do you think that he's going to give up on you now that you failed again? You know, it's because, it's because you are a failure that he went to the cross to begin with. Alrighty, now, I really need to, to wrap this up. Let's go over to John 13. We've already begun talking about this. But in light of the power of your God, and listen, we, we, could, spend, we could spend years, and, and truly we will spend all of eternity before the throne together 
admiring and exploring the power of our God. I, I truly believe that. And I truly believe that even though eternity is a long time, right, we will never plumb the depths of the riches of his love for us. But listen, I look forward to trying. I look forward to exploring those vast caverns of love with you. And we see the power of God in, 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 in creation and in the waters of the earth and in the expanse of the stars and even in the power of his servants, angels. But what does your God do? He shows us here in John 13. He is, he is hours away from what he's about to experience, not only physically in, in experiencing uh, uh, thirsting and, and suffocation, all those things, but he's about to experience something far worse, being abandoned by God. Now you may feel like in, in your time of desperation, when you're in the furnace of suffering, you may feel like you've been abandoned by God. But let me tell you, child of God, it's because Christ experienced abandonment for you that you will never, ever experience being abandoned by God truly. Now, you may feel like it, but often it's because we're just looking in a different direction. God's right there beside us. But what does he do? Does he sit back and say, my servants, I want you to tend to me. I want you to give, uh, I want you to massage me and get me ready for this and, and fan me with leaves. <laughs> no. What does he do? Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour was come, that he should depart out of this world unto the Father, having loved his own which were in the world, he loved them unto the end. At supper being ended, the devil having, having now put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. See, Jesus knows what's at stake here. He, he knows what's going on. You know, we realize that Jesus in the flesh is God in the flesh, that he is God and man. And so anything that you see here in the garden that you, you feel like, oh, oh God is getting uh, cold feet here. No, this is why he came to this world. Remember that. <laughs> Just shortly after that, when, when we have the whole fiasco with, with Peter cutting the ear off, what does Jesus say? He says, he says, put that away. Shall I not drink of this cup that the Father has given me to drink of? This cup of the dregs of the wrath. He'll drink it. So when he's praying in the garden, and as he is astonished that your God who created these mighty wonders, he was astonished at the feelings he was feeling there in the garden. And why is that? Because he knows what's coming. He knows what he's about to experience. It shows us that he's not, he's not walking blindly into some trap. You ever, you, I don't know if you remember this, Personally, if you remember taking a child there, if you don't remember it happening to you, but do you remember your first shots that you, that you could consciously remember? And I remember walking into that, and I was like a lamb, dumb, brought it before the shears. And it's like, oh, it's just going to be this great, happy, fun thing, you know? I'm going to get a treat afterwards. I mean, this is great, you know? And then, and the world turns upside down, Right? And then the second time that you go to get your shots and you know what's coming, you're like, no, I'm not falling for that routine, right? You know what's coming. There's a difference, as, as Brother David Crawford, who preached on this uh, topic, said, there's a difference in going and knowing and going and not knowing, right? What we see in the garden is, as Jesus is, is an anguish, we see that he knows what's coming, and so it makes the fact that he continues anyway all the more glorious. That his love for you compels him to push through. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. It tells us there 
that there is a goal out there in his mind, a joy that he is pushing through. And that is what compels him to go through the agony of the cross. Now, what is that joy? You ever thought about that? It's the joy, for one, that he is accomplishing the will of his Father. But what is that will? It is in your salvation. Can you, can you imagine that? As Jesus, your Savior, goes each step closer to Calvary, it's the joy of spending time with you that compels him to go and to die and to suffocate and to experience the abandonment of God. It's you. It's the joy of being with you that compels him. There are days when I'm having a bad day at work, right? And it is the joy of seeing my wife at home and us getting to eat supper together that compels me to push through. That's what it is for God as he pushes through the agony of the cross. It's, it's the joy and the expectation of being with you. But here we are at the eve of that. And what does your Savior do? I'm telling you, if it were me, and if I knew what was about to come, I would be taking a hot bath, I would, be, I would be enjoying every pleasure I possibly could to get my mind off of what was coming. But what did he do? He riseth from supper. He laid aside his garments. He took a towel and girded himself. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet. Now these are the dirty, stinking, nasty feet of the people that he knows that in just a few hours are about to, about to run away and hide in the woods as he gets taken from them. These are the people, as Peter that he knows, is about to deny me three times. And do you think, do you think that your God, if you've denied him, do you think that your God holds that against you? Because if ever there had been a time for him to show that, it would have been in him getting down on his knees and saying, oh wait, I forgot. Peter, you're going to deny me three times in the morning. I'm not going to wash your stinking feet. You wash your own feet, right? That's not your Savior. He displays his love before you and that he gets down on his knees as a servant he didn't ask one of the disciples to do this. He didn't send an angel to do this. He didn't send an angel to the cross for you. He came himself. He didn't delegate it to another. And so now, our response to that kind of love and that kind of God is that we should worship him. We should not delegate our worship to another. It is my responsibility to worship this God, not in order to get saved, but because I am saved, right? To come to Him, I will never repay Him. Now, I, I know that we all hate to feel indebted to somebody, right? I feel indebted to the hospitality of this sweet family and staying here with them. And I'm going to try to repay them, right? But when you bring that kind of mentality to God, you're not going to get very far, okay? When you come here to worship Him, to try to repay Him, you're never going to be able to repay Him. We're going to have to sing amazing grace for all eternity because there's never going to get to a point where we balance the books, right? It will always be amazing grace. And so why then do we serve Him? I don't serve Him to pay Him back. I don't serve Him to get saved. I serve Him because it is my reasonable service to do so. Right? That it's my only option. That if he would pay all for me, if he would lay it out all out on the altar for me, the very least I can do is to lay it all out for him. Right? And so he gets down and he washes their feet and he gets to Peter. Oh, Peter, ever the character. He gets to him and, and Jesus, I mean, and Peter says, 
Lord, dost thou wash my feet? And Jesus says, what I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. He says, Peter, you don't understand what I'm doing right now, but you will. (laughs) This is an example to them and to us of what he is about to do on the cross as a servant giving up of himself to wash the feet of his disciples. And we, and we practice this as Prim the Baptist. We wash the disciples' feet. We, we normally do it as a part of our communion service, just like as Jesus constituted the communion service that we would do in remembrance of him. And then he washes the, defeat, the, the feet, and then he says, If I, your Lord and Master, have done this, ye ought to do it one toward another. And that's, and that's kind of like, well, obvious. He's leading by example. If our God of glory, the God that we cannot even fathom how holy and righteous and good and powerful that he is, if he would then come down and wash our nasty feet, then it's my reasonable service to wash yours and to wash each other's. And, and what's another reason that we do, the, we do the foot washing service? It's not just because we're walking through the motions of washing each other's feet. It has a far deeper meaning. Because when I'm down at my brother's feet, and, and when they're down at mine, my ugly, nasty, hairy, white feet, right? As they're washing my feet, you know what it reminds me? It reminds me that I am no greater than he. He's no greater than me. And, and, and it reminds me that I ought to be doing this every day in my heart as we fellowship and as strife and friction comes between us in the church. You, you want to, I know that revival has been a theme here. You, you want to snuff out revival. You want to kill this church. You know the best way to do that is to allow friction to turn into a lack of peace. You want to kill this church? You, you allow a lack of peace to reign here. How do you allow the peace of Christ to dwell in this church? I have felt it. How do you maintain it? You find yourself at each other's feet. You don't find each other, you don't find yourself at each other's throats. You find yourself at each other's feet. It is really, really hard to hold petty things against one another. When you are at their feet, washing their feet. Now, it's not just about the the foot washing service. It's about your daily life. You find yourself agitated with somebody or you have different ideas going on in the church and and you feel feel factions starting to form. You know the best way to dissolve that (laughs) is you sit there and you pray. You pray for that person that you have a differing opinion about. And you pray honestly. You know, I've prayed this before. Lord, help that person not to be so difficult. (laughs) That's not a very effective prayer. (laughs) But if you pray honestly and earnestly for that person as a blood-bought brother or sister in Christ like you ought to, it is really, really hard (laughs) to hold on to any negative feelings. You know, it's amazing. When you want to talk about revival, You can't manufacture revival, okay? Revival has to come from the Spirit of God. But we do see this in Scripture time and time and time again, where revival comes as a response to obedience, that God rewards His people when they are obedient. There are principles in Scripture that God has laid out for us. I so adore the fact that this church is pushing for more fellowship together. I love the, the idea of the coffee bar as a, as, you know, as a way to encourage fellowship with one another a little time before church. Fellowship is one of those, one of those things listed in Acts 2.42. That, that, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayers. I mean, there, there you go. You want the recipe for revival? There it is. Those four things. Now, God is going to have to be the one that blesses. 
But you see time and time in Scripture where, where people did what God told them to do. They found the book of God and they said, Oh man, we have not been building booths as a part of this festival for many years. Let's start doing that. And they did it. And you know what happened? Everybody was joyous because they did what the Lord told them to do. Surprise, surprise. What the Lord says works. Okay? You know? Now, if I were to give you some advice, it may or may not work. But if, if the advice is the same as the word of God, it's going to work. I guarantee it. You know, we're taught in law school. I don't, know, I don't know if they teach us actively or if they taught us just by brainwashing us. <laughs> but the answer, the answer is very seldom a hard line, right? You know, if your client asks you a question, the most likely answer is it depends. It depends on this, it depends on that, right? There's hardly ever a guarantee. But this, but this I guarantee. If, if you turn to the Word of God for an answer for, to an answer for a question in your life, and you do what the Word of God says, it works. That's a guarantee. Now, it may not work in the way you hope it to, okay? But it will work in a way that is far, exceedingly, abundantly above what you could ask or hope, right? All right, so my time is up, but I do want to share this with you. As, as Jesus washed them, and he says, and, and Peter says, uh, Lord, do you wash me? And, and, and Jesus says, you don't understand what I'm doing yet. And then, of course, Peter overreacts, right? You know any overreactors in your life? That's me. I am. Peter overreacts, and he says, well, Lord, don't just wash my feet then. Wash, wash my whole body. And, and Jesus says, at first he answers him and says, If I wash thee not, thou hast no part with me. You know that unless Jesus were to die on the cross for you, unless he were to quicken you with his spirit and make you alive, you have no place with him, right? He is the one that has to wash you and to bring you into this relationship. And now that you are... <laughs> Now that you are in this relationship, there are some things you can do to enrich that fellowship. I did nothing. My, my mom and dad did not ask me and, and get my consent for me to be born, right? Do you, ever, do you remember signing a consent to be born? I, I don't. <laughs> they didn't ask me permission. But now that I am born and I am in a, a, a relationship with my father that cannot be changed. I'm his son. He is my father regardless of our fellowship, right? That's like the prodigal son. When he left and he abandoned his father, did he all of a sudden become a goat or, or become not a, not a child of the father? No, he always was. So, so when, when he comes to himself, I, I don't believe that's him being born again. I believe that it's him repenting and coming back to the fellowship that he, he had with his father. You know, now as a blood-bought child of God, there are things that you can do to enrich your fellowship. I can, I can stop talking to my father. I can stop spending time with him. But, but our relationship as father and son does not change, but our fellowship is, is dramatically affected. Now, I want to have a good relationship with my father, my earthly father, and my heavenly father. How do we do that? Well, obviously God's not moving. <laughs> He is always there. Now, I ought to, and this, this convicts me, but I ought to press into that and to work on my relationship with him, to pray to him more, to read the scripture, this great love letter that he's written to me. But also this, as he says this to them in the same chapter of John 13, and I'll close with this. John 13 and verse 34. Now this is one of the last things that he says to his disciples as they're all together. And he is going to the cross. Now this is, this is like the, the season finale of, of the greatest show, right? This is it. This is the last statement of your master. What does he say? Does he say, be strong, take up arms. When I die, you, you go to war, right? Now we know we're in a spiritual warfare, right? But... But what does he say? 
He said, make sure you hold fast and, and you stand on that doctrine. If anybody, if anybody wavers from that doctrine, you excommunicate them from the church, you kick them out. Now, what, what does he say? He says, a new commandment I give unto you, that ye love one another. As I have loved you, that ye also love one another. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if ye have love one to another. Did he say that, that they will know that you're my disciples um, by, your, by your zeal? Will they know that you're my disciples by your doctrine and by your stances or by your practice? Of, of you know, We don't have pianos. We don't have this. We don't have that. Will they know that you're my disciples by all these things? No. He says, they will know that you're my disciples because you love one another. And did he say this? Did he say, a new commandment I give you to love one another when it's convenient or when the sun is shining or when the economy's good? No, he said to love one another. Now, if we were to keep that in the forefront of our minds, you know, an easy way to do that is to remember the washing of the feet that Christ did for you. Not only, not only physically did he do that to the disciples, but he also did it uh, in a much greater sense on the cross for you. Now, if our Lord and Master would love us so much, it, it ought to be easy. That's obviously easier said than done, but it ought to be easy to love one another. And I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, I fibbed. 1 John 3.16, I know I'm going over. I really apologize for that. I'll try to, you can put it on the tab. I'll try to make it up sometime. But we cannot leave this. I cannot leave you without this. We may not get to see each other again in the flesh. I don't know. We, the next time that I see you may very well be at the throne of God together, okay? And I can't leave you without telling you this. Because I want the very best for this church so does your Savior, as he looks down on you, as a book of remembrance is written because you were there worshiping him. You want assurance of your salvation. You want revival here at this church. What do we read in 1 John 3, 16? It says, Hereby perceive we the love of God, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoso hath the world's, uh, this world's goods, and seeth his brother have need, and shutteth up his bowels of compassion from him, how dwelleth the love of God in him? My little children, let us not love in word, neither in tongue, but in deed and in truth. And, and I want you to get this. And hereby we know that we are of the truth, and shall assure our hearts before him. You want assurance that God truly does love you. I've told you that God loves you here in this sermon. Brother Dolph tells you that God loves you. You know, in theory, that God loves you. Have you ever felt like, well, maybe he really doesn't actually love me, though. <laughs> right? If you want assurance that God loves you, what are you to do? You love one another, and you will feel the love of God for you in that. Now, it's, an, it's a mysterious thing, but I, I tell you this, as, as, as we're closing for real this time, I tell you this, I don't have, I don't have the body of my Savior to hold on to here in the flesh. Like I, like I was reading this morning, as, as John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, as he calls himself, as he laid his head on the bosom of Christ. You know, I don't have that in the flesh to hold on to. But you know what I do have? You know what we do have? We have the body of Christ right here. You know, when I hug brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so, you know what I'm doing? I'm hugging Christ. You ever thought about that? Did you know that when you are arguing with one another and you're feeling that friction, do you know that you are arguing with the body of Christ? Doesn't that just break your heart? It breaks mine. We can love the body of Christ. And you know, people in the community 
will notice the love at this church. That's another guarantee I give you. At our church at Zion, that got down to one member, it was, it was pretty easy for her to correct the changes, to make the changes that needed to be made. They had gotten off into absolutism and some other things. Well, she just had a conference of herself, and she voted to change it back over. I mean, that was probably the simplest business meeting there's ever been, church business meeting. And so then people began to come, and the Lord began to, to bless as we were obedient to him. I came in as a part of that revival. I mean, I was Presbyterian. But then we've had, we've had people in the community who have come to the church and who have stayed at that church because they said the love that y'all have for one another is something special. It wasn't, it wasn't the doctrine. It wasn't the beautiful a cappella singing. It wasn't the no Sunday schools. It wasn't any of those things. It was the love that we have for one another that drew people into it because that's how you see the love of your Savior. It's on full display before the world. As you love one another, you are, you are doing, you're following the example of your Savior. And I really apologize.